Nate, you played my favorite song this morning. Um, are we good? And I don't know if any of you have ever seen the Tim Hawkins video where he describes different praise styles, but I'll admit I did the hold the baby a little bit, and I was tempted to do the dueling light bulbs, but I didn't quite get there, to be honest. Um, it's really good to be here this morning. Um, I know we're probably missing some people with the holiday weekend, but uh, yeah, I just it, it's a great opportunity to, to be up here um, and just share with you. It's a lot of trust that you've put in us as interns, and we appreciate it. And the truth is, we, we don't want to uh, in any way make it about ourselves, but about the Word of God. And this morning in John chapter 4, uh, we're going to see a very familiar story. Um, and I'm just hoping that it can, you know, just bless you this morning in a new way. Uh, last week we looked at John chapter 3. Uh, Brad taught about covert, uh, cautious, or courageous Christianity. Um, just using the example uh, of Nicodemus and how he approached Christ. Um, but this morning as we move on to chapter 4, uh, we're going to be looking at the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 18 this morning. So beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I just want you guys to think about this a little bit. So the sixth hour is the middle of the day. This is the Middle East, hot sun, deserts. You know, we've all probably seen pictures. And Jesus had been walking and traveling all day, so he had to be hot, dusty, tired. Picking back up in verse 7 here. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would, given, would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Once again, she's thinking about physical water here. She's not thinking in the spiritual sense. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For if you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, what you have said is true. Let's bow for prayer one more time. 
Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, no matter how often we read it, it blesses us. It, it satisfies us and it uh, points us to you. Father, this morning I just ask that you would still our hearts, focus our minds, just free us from distraction, help us to look at your word, to be in tune with your spirit, and to op- open to what you have for our hearts, Father. I just ask this in your name. So, uh, by a raise of hands, how many of you have been to another country? Okay. How many of you have been to another state? Well, most of you have, but it looks like some of you really need to get out a little bit more. <laughs> I'm surprised how many didn't raise their hand on that last one. Well, you know, while you've been traveling, have you ever noticed a change in culture? Um, I mean, frankly, the further south of the Mason-Dixon line you go, the more the culture changes. I'm sure you've noticed that. But it's true, no matter where we go, there's differences in culture. It may be in the way that people dress, the way they talk, the way they drive, the food they eat, or how they interact with each other, the activities they enjoy, and so much more. But no matter where we visit, even within a specific city, you can find you know, a citywide culture, but you can also find unique subcultures. Um, it's just, it's, it's the nature of it. It's different from, from what we grew up with. Most of the time, these differences, they're not difficult to deal with. Uh, if we can't read a sign because it's in a different language, we'll open up an app on our phone, we'll take a picture of it, and the app will translate it. Um, if we have a question about why somebody does something in a certain way, we'll probably once again pull up Google and say, hey, Google, why does so-and-so do this? And we'll get our answer. And uh, for example, if you're a a tourist in Holmes County, you may ask, hey, Google, why do Amish bikes go so fast? (laughs) And then Google is going to shatter your expectations of the Amish lifestyle when it tells you that they drive electric bikes, and that's not what you were expecting. But even if you'd go back 100 years to your own hometown, not some other town, but your own hometown, the chances you'd have a pretty difficult time fitting in with the culture or dealing with it. Uh, Even just going back to the 1950s, for example, if you'd go back and you'd attempt a a cross-country trip, I dare say that a fair amount of us would end up getting lost along the way because GPS was not yet invented, and you'd have to read a paper map. Um, I'm actually very curious. I I wasn't going to ask this, but how many people here have used a paper map? How many of you still use a paper map? <laughs> yes, well, I don't. I, I would, it would be a disaster if I would try that. And I bet most of us probably haven't used a traditional map in the last 10 years, to be honest. Uh, if you traveled back to that time period, you'd also notice something else. The speech patterns would be different. Some of the words would mean something different than what they mean today. And the point is that in order to understand a story like the one we see in John 4, we have to understand the culture of that particular time in order to gain the context that we need to understand the point of the story. 
And keep in mind that when John's writing this book, the people that he's talking to, they would have understood, you know, the culture. They would have understood the context. And it would have had greater meaning because of that. So that's why we try to, uh, to better understand the culture and the context of the story. Um, I'd like to read a brief description of the Samaritans to help us understand this before we dig in. And uh, I'm not a historian, so I didn't write this on my own. I just pulled it off the internet. Um, but just let me read what they had to say. The Samaritans were people who lived in what had been the northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom's capital. Uh, the kingdom's capital, Samaria, was placed between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south. The Samaritans were an ethnically mixed nation with Jewish and pagan heritage. Although they revered Yahweh, as did the Jews, their faith was not the common Judaism of the day. They affirmed only the first five books of the Bible and considered their temple as Mount Gerizim rather than Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Because of their imperfect adherence to Judaism and their partly pagan ancestry, the Samaritans were despised by ordinary Jews. Rather than contaminate themselves by passing through Samaritan territory, Jews who were traveling from Judea to Galilee or vice versa would cross over the River Jordan and travel parallel till they neared their destination and then they'd cross the river again just so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. They were literally looked at as spiritual half-breeds by the Jews and any dealing with a Samaritan was considered unclean and to be avoided at all costs. So the fact that Jesus in this account is not only passing through Samaria, but speaking to a woman in public is highly unusual. It would have been considered scandalous to the rest of the Jews. But not only was this woman a Samaritan, she was also most likely an outcast in a society of outcasts. We can make this assumption because she was drawing water in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. Um, typically, over in those cultures, the women would go to gather water as a group. They would usually travel in the evening or early morning when it was still cool outside. The only reason that you would go in the middle of the day, the hottest part, is because you didn't want to bump into anybody. You were probably a social pariah. And uh, in addition to this, the reference to her multiple husbands would suggest that she likely was unfaithful in her marriages. And then the one that she was with wasn't even her husband. All of these things would have made her society, the, the Samaritans, <clears throat> to really look down on her and probably to cast her out. So do you get the picture of the context that we're looking here? It's, it's a highly religious society, but mixed with pagan beliefs. And man, if you were a Jew, you didn't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole. So let's, look, let's uh, dig into the story and see what God has for us today. Um, basically, if I could put this sermon in a sentence, it would be Jesus wants us to be satisfied is the only pure source of our satisfaction. And that'll bring us to point number one. Jesus is the source of our satisfaction. We see this in verse 10 where he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And again in verse 14 where he says, 
Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, If you think of trying to establish a new water supply, one of the most important things that you need to do is make sure that the water supply is, is pure, that the source is pure. If the source is clean, we know that the water is beneficial and it's safe to drink, for, uh, drink from. However, if the source is corrupted, we know that consuming the water will bring sickness. Now, my dad is here this morning, and I hate to throw him under the bus, but he gave me such a perfect illustration recently in his own life that I'm going to have to do it. Sorry. A few weeks ago, he was out back in the pasture and drank from a source that he thought was pure. It wasn't. There's this water that feeds into the pipe, um, comes straight from a spring, if it's the same one I'm thinking about. I, growing up, I drank out of that many, many times. It's amazing water. But after he drank of the pipe, he realized that there was some algae in it or something of that nature, I suppose and ended up paying the price. He became ill from drinking the water. It's very important to know that our source, our water source is pure. Also, knowing the source of our satisfaction, that it is pure, is also important in the same way that it is for the physical water that we drink. The overarching theme in the book of John is the divinity of Christ. It proves his divinity. And we see this in the first few chapters where John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness and baptizing people, and he calling on them to look for the one who is coming after him. And later on, when Jesus passes by the river where John is baptizing, God the Father reveals to John that this is the Messiah, this is the Lamb of God. And John testifies to that. Trusting in Jesus as the pure source of our satisfaction requires us to believe in and trust the source. Believing in Jesus is more than just a casual agreement in our mind. Um, You know, sometimes we hear something so often growing up that we don't really weigh in our hearts or in our minds, like, is this really true? You know, you just kind of, you believe it because you've heard it so often, but there's no real conviction behind it. It's secondhand belief, secondhand knowledge. Really believing that Jesus is the Messiah is to acknowledge in the very depth of our soul that he was a real man walking on the earth and facing the same physical difficulties that we face today. But at the same time, it's understanding that he was fully God, sent here in the form of man on a divine mission to live a perfect life and to offer himself up as the only sacrifice that is able to pay for our sins, which allows us to stand justified before a holy and almighty God. And in this encounter with the Samaritan woman, Jesus tries to show her multiple times that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the one that John the Baptist has been preaching about, God in the flesh and the living source of water. But she was only thinking with an earthly mindset. And in verse 10, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Who other than a divine being could make the statement that they can give you living water? Only God has the power over life and death, so it would, you know, 
seem to reason that only God or a divine being could, in fact, give you living water. In verse 16, Jesus tells the woman, go call your husband. And of course, she responds and says, I have no husband. And Jesus responds with, you are right in saying that you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And at this point, the woman would have to realize that Jesus, a complete stranger, somehow has intimate knowledge of her life. This is something that he shouldn't have known. He was just passing through. Yet, even at this point, her response is not to think, you know, could this be God? But her response is, well, he must be a prophet. And a few verses later, in verse 25, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. This is the same Messiah that John the Baptist had been preaching about, and I'm sure his preaching would have found its way to the Samaritans. And at this point, Jesus has to be like, come on, lady, what else do I need to do? What else do I have to say? You know, I've, I've shown you these things. So he responds directly to her, and he says, and I love this, I who speak to you am he. And let's not miss how significant this is. Up until this point, John the Baptist and the disciples, they've talked about and they've proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the first time that Jesus himself declares that he is the Messiah. And notice, it wasn't to a religious leader like Nicodemus that we saw in the previous chapter. Nicodemus sought him out. You'd think, well, if Nicodemus sought him out, why wouldn't God reveal him to him? I mean, Nicodemus, he was the the teacher of the Jews. He was a very prominent figure. Excuse me. It wasn't to a large crowd or an earthly ruler. It was in the heat of the day, dusty and tired, fully showing his humanity in his thirst and weariness. This is when and where he quietly declares that he is the Christ to an outcast of outcasts. She wasn't even seeking him. He sought her out in the midst of her circumstance and was offering her a different source of satisfaction. Now, this wasn't an accident. If you remember in the first part of the chapter, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Well, as we see back in the Jewish culture, he didn't have to. Um, They would often bypass Samaria like we talked about before, crossing the river twice. And the fact that it says that he had to pass through Samaria would seem to indicate to me that he had a divine appointment, part of his mission that needed to be fulfilled. Excuse me. And this is wonderful news for us today because, in all honesty, uh, we're exactly like this woman, the Samaritan lady. We are outcasts of outcasts. We are sinners. Scripture says that our hearts are desperately wicked and opposed to God. And despite the evidence, we resist and we rebel. We reject him as our Messiah and our source of satisfaction, our default response is to be at war with God. And instead, we continue looking for something more. But I'm telling you this morning, there is nothing more than Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end. It's where we find our satisfaction. He is everything. And when we get that, when we truly get that, only then will we find true satisfaction. But instead, we so often run to the corrupted source, the source that Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That brings us to point number two. No other source will satisfy. 
This earthly or corrupted source can be things like money, relationships, social standing, fame, addictions, can even be trying to have the perfect body. And while some of these things in themselves are not bad, if we're looking to them for our satisfaction, I guarantee you it will never be enough. We might have all the money that we need. You're always going to want more. You might be in the best shape of your life, but you might be thinking, well, I mean, if I just take those steroids, I can get even better, even though it's doing damage to your body down the road. We might have a great group of friends, that, and the fact is we're so desperate for more that watching our phones for social media notifications is more important than the friends sitting right across the table from us. And more than that, it's more important than getting into the Word of God and prayer. And I speak from experience. I spent much of my life drinking from the wrong source, the well of earthly water. And the reality is, no matter how much I drank of it, it was never enough. How many of you like uh, going out to eat? My kind of people. Have you ever gone out to eat and you've had a, a great meal? Maybe a, a big juicy burger or a pulled pork sandwich, whatever it may be. But after the meal, you simply cannot drink enough water. No matter how much you drink, even to the point of feeling sick, you can't overcome the fact that all of that salt and fat that was so good just an hour ago is now driving a thirst that you can't overcome. This is exactly what feeding ourselves with worldly things is like. The more we indulge, the thirstier we get. So which source do you find yourself trusting and running to today? Are you chasing after the things that bring temporary satisfaction, but in the end make you thirstier? You will be like the person who lost in the desert, sees a mirage off in the distance, and you're like, there's water. You go running after it, only to get close and it moves further away, or it was never there to begin with. We have another source that we can turn to, a source that is always with us. We don't need to chase it down, like that mirage in the desert, and a source that will always leave us satisfied. The sources that we are satisfying ourselves in both reveal themselves outwardly. And that brings me to my last point. Um, evidence of real satisfaction. And in this final point, I want to quickly look at two responses to the satisfaction we find in Jesus. One of the markers of true satisfaction is worship in spirit and truth. When we are satisfied in Jesus, we will worship him in spirit and truth. We see in verse 20, our fathers, the Samaritans, worshiped on this mountain, but you, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. And Jesus responds in verse 23 and says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now the Jews and the Samaritans, they had a disagreement on where the proper place was to worship. Um, before the arrival of the Messiah, they had to travel to their respective places of worship in order to worship God. And can you imagine being this woman when Jesus said to her, the hour is coming and is now here when you will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For so long she had been waiting for this moment and to hear these words, 
letting her know that there is now freedom to worship wherever and whenever she wants to. And we have the same freedom today, allowing us to worship Christ out of the overflow of our satisfaction in him. When that living water wells up in our souls, our worship will pour out likewise. It won't be by obligation, a forced affair, you know, time and place, you know, 10 o'clock Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday nights, wherever it is. Wherever we are, when we're satisfied in Christ, when we're feeding, drinking from that pure source, that worship that flows out of that satisfaction, it will be obvious to those around us. And we don't do it for the glory of ourselves or the glory of others, but to God. Our lives will become spiritual acts of worship offered daily as holy and acceptable unto him. Not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Another marker of true satisfaction is testifying to the source. When we discover something great, our natural response is to proclaim it to those around us. To let others know so that they can also enjoy it. We see this in verse 28 and 29 where he says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Her testimony of Christ caused people to believe. This can be seen in verse 39 where it says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. How many people have believed in Christ because of your testimony? Because you are evidence of satisfaction in him. I know if you'd go by my life, it's sad how little I've shown that testimony. So Mercy Hill, if we're satisfied in Christ, if he is who he says he is, the Messiah, there is no way that we can remain silent. Our lives are not our own and our testimonies are not our own. The satisfaction and change in our lives should be so apparent to those around us that they will point directly back to the source of that satisfaction. Like signs along a desert road that say, water this way to weary travelers, our lives will be signs that point them right back to Jesus. They won't be able to miss those signs. Worship team, you can come up now. Um, Just in conclusion, this applies to all of us, guys. But this morning, I really do have a huge burden for the youth. And so, any of the youth that are here, hear me when I say this. You're in a stage right now where you think that a lot of different things are going to satisfy you. Well, when I get my car, when I graduate, when I get a job, when I move out, when I go to college, maybe when I get a boyfriend or girlfriend, when I've got my own money that I can go do whatever I want, I don't care what it is. All of those things, they look shiny, they look great. This is specifically for the youth it won't satisfy you. Only Christ and a relationship with Christ will satisfy you. So what source are you going to this morning for your satisfaction? Are you trusting in the pure source of Jesus Christ? Or are you still going to the earthly source and finding yourself thirsty again and again? In my own life, when I began to fully trust Jesus as the source of my satisfaction, 
and turn to him and his word rather than turning towards what the world offered? That is when the thirst that I couldn't quench began fading away. I became satisfied in him, truly satisfied in him. The eternal water that he offers gives us a joy that is beyond explanation. Even if money is tight, if our friends reject us, if my pants fit a little snug, none of these external things define me. It is my relationship with Christ and that he is the source of my satisfaction that defines me. I'm not talking about the type of satisfaction where you're eating a meal You're like, yeah, I mean, the food was okay. I'm satisfied. It wasn't great, but I'm satisfied. That's not the kind of satisfaction we're talking about. We're talking about a deep kind of satisfaction, a real contentment that comes from within, and only God can offer the living water that provides this satisfaction. Anyone or anything else that claims to provide satisfaction, true satisfaction, they're an imposter. It's not true. They may bring you a bit of pleasure for a time, but like the woman that had five husbands, even husband number five wasn't enough. She moved on to another man. She was thirsty again. But in Jesus Christ, the source of the living water is a bottomless well. Marcel, I'm telling you right now, this morning, you can be satisfied in that living water. Like the Samaritans in verse 42, they said, we have heard for ourselves and know that this is the Savior of the world. Do you really know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is your Savior, that you can turn to him for your satisfaction? Believe that Jesus is the only source of living water and lasting satisfaction, and you will never thirst again. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for each person that is here this morning. We just thank you that we can bring our lives to you, that we can worship you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we can learn from your word. We just ask that you'd help us to be diligent in studying, in prayer, in communion with you, Father. I ask that as a church that we would have love for those around us, that we would be as a light and a witness, that we would share the source of our satisfaction, that we would point thirsty and weary travelers toward you, not to ourselves, but to you, the pure source. Just ask these things in your name. Amen.